Hi, Korsha. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited. I've been on A Hungry Society twice, technically, and I never have gotten to interview you. So so this is a big day. Yeah, this is um, actually, I was thinking about the last time you were on the podcast, um, the circumstances <laughs> that led to that. <laughs> Yes, running really late and you filling in. (laughs) And I had no voice at all. So I I was I was straining my throat to to say anything, but I did get to eat pizza after, so that was good. Um (laughs) Yeah, worth it. Worth it. (laughs) Yes. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, uh so I grew up in Maryland. Um and grew up eating, my mom liked to cook um, and she would make all kinds of stuff like um, spare ribs and that she baked in the oven with like, you know, the jarred barbecue sauce and mashed potatoes from scratch. And she liked to make like corned beef and cabbage and pierogies. And she just liked to like cook from all over like the world. Um, but like some of my most formative food memories are like with extended family. So my dad's family is from Virginia and my mom's family is from the Virgin Islands. And I just, my favorite food memories are of those two places eating, but in both occasions eating seafood um, and just like being surrounded by my family. So yeah, like that's like, I guess like my most like favorite food memories from like my childhood. Right. And then you lived in Boston for a while? I did. I lived there for nine years. Um, I moved there after going to culinary school in Hyde Park. And I I moved there to go to Emerson for journalism. And man, I just kind of like ran out of money (laughs) to go to school (laughs) and hung around for several years, just like working in restaurants and you know, just I met my now husband up there and like lived in Boston um, and thought I was going to stay there until it started to feel way too small. Um, And then we moved to New Jersey, which is where I am now. Right. And you wrote a really great piece, I remember, for food and was it for food and wine? What is it for Bon Appetit about the oysters in Boston? Oh, that was for Bon Appetit. Yeah. About how um, we broke that laid off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah no so seafood seems to be the the a real sticking point for you in in terms of your food memories absolutely um it's always like super comforting to me there's something like very visceral about eating seafood and actually it makes me think of your oyster piece like the like immediacy of seafood the fact that it can't be you know dead for oh that sounds really <laughs> intense but like what I'm saying, it, it can't be like just laying around for like days and days and days right. like you have to have it like as fresh as possible and it just it tastes like the sea it tastes like well, good seafood anyway it tastes like right. water it tastes like you know like the beach and that's my favorite location on earth so I I cannot imagine life without seafood <laughs> yeah there's something really not just visceral, visceral about it, but, you know, alive. And, and that feels, I think, so, so human about eating seafood, even if it's just an oyster. Um, 
But you you started your podcast and website, A Hungry Society, in 2016. Um, And that's a time many U.S.-based food writers keep pointing back to right now as a turning point in terms of what the mainstream food media covered. Uh, Did that moment in time feel like a shift to you in in the bigger um, food media scene? And, And what inspired you to create your own space then? Um, I, I was thinking about this. I I don't know that the larger like food media landscape pushed me to talk about anything that I wasn't thinking about or having conversations about already. It was just like you said, like things just kind of shifted to where I finally could get paid <laughs> to write about these things. Um, and I didn't start a hungry society to do that either, you know, at that time, like it was just kind of like a natural sort of like organic way for me to have conversations with people that I thought were doing incredibly like dope work and not getting enough attention for it, which was kind of my MO anyway, when I was writing, Um, it just happened to like, coincide with white people realizing racism (laughs) exists. Right. (laughs) You know, it was just like, oh, do you want to write about this for us? And do you want to talk about this topic for us? And I've been able to kind of carve out a living in food writing, um, which I'm very grateful for. But I think I would be doing this work anyway, even if food media wouldn't pay me for it. I would probably I would definitely need like another job on the side, but I would still (laughs) write about the same things I write about. Right. And what has having your own podcast and your own website allowed you to do that you maybe wouldn't be able to do in, in main, in a, in a magazine or. Yeah. I mean, it allows me to not have to quantify or validate people that I think are really amazing. Um, so like, I, someone who just popped into my head is Omar, uh, who I know you've had um, in your newsletter before. But like the first time we talked, it he didn't really have that many pieces out about him. And I just, I knew and I understood like his reference points and his food is delicious. And I thought it was such a, Honeysuckle is such a brilliant concept. And, you know, his poetry is so amazing that I wanted to have that conversation. I didn't have to ask anyone, you know, I didn't have right. to create a pitch around Omar. It was <laughs> just, I can see that this person's work is dope. And so I'm going to highlight them, you know, like having yeah. the space to have those conversations with people who are doing really cool work and document their work and where they are in that moment is like, it's, it's freeing. Like it feels like my own space to like fully explore whatever I want to in that moment. Right. Were there any challenges to launching Hungry Society when you maybe didn't have those bylines at major publications? Was was, it, were, was anyone kind of hesitant to talk to you or, you know, was it hard to get on Heritage Radio? Like, what was there any, no. you know, gatekeeping there? No. <laughs> no, like, it, it honestly, like, with Heritage, it's interesting because I cold pitched them on A Hungry Society, the podcast. Um, I just, I looked at their programming and I remembered Nicole Taylor's show, Hot Grease, and I realized it was off of their like weekly programming and there was this gap. 
in, you know, telling black stories or having a black host, even like there was, there wasn't a black host. Um, and so I just cold pitched them on the idea of me talking to people that I thought were dope. Um, with the website, originally, I don't, a lot of people don't know this. Originally, Hungry Society was a t-shirt company. Uh-huh. Um and a very unsuccessful one. Like I think <laughs> my mom bought a shirt, my aunt and um my, and Corey has one. Uh but that's it. Like, you know, even like people I've been friends with for a long time were like, "Oh, that's such a cute design. What is it? Like what why why um yeah, it was just like not very successful." So, um and I was like selling the shirts to like raise money for an organization that was um, helping kids go to culinary school, which I felt great about, but like they weren't selling. So I wasn't raising any money. Right. <laughs> um, I realized it would be more helpful to like write stories about cool organizations. Um, but yeah, like actually launching it, launching a hungry society as like a website with stories was actually pretty terrifying um just because i knew like i could talk to people in a way that was really good for a podcast but writing it down um you know and honoring like each story and what makes this person special and their work special and maybe that's in a q a format or maybe that's in an essay format or maybe that's you know them drawing something or just like having all of that on my shoulders while freeing mm-hmm. was also terrifying because I wanted to do people's stories justice. So I'm still working through that, but <laughs> it's cool too. No, that's, that's super difficult. Actually, I was thinking you, yeah. that, you know, you went to culinary school, you've written a bit about culinary schools and what they do and don't teach. And you were raising funds mm-hmm. to get kids to call What do you, how are you, how do you feel about culinary school? I feel like it's, it's been such a topic of controversy I mean, all of higher education yeah. has, but, but culinary school, especially because, you know, you're, you're sending people into, into a very low paying profession, maybe with debt and, right. and that sort of thing. So what are, what are your culinary school feelings yeah. these days? I mean, I, I feel differently for sure. Um, so, I mean, beyond the fact that culinary school is incredibly expensive, um, there's also, it's also because it's incredibly expensive, super white. Um, and the coursework reflects that and the student body reflects that and the administrators reflect that. Um, I wrote a piece last year about how coursework needs to be more diverse and you know, pilaf should be taught next to a jollof rice and uh, mole should be included in like the mother sauces if you're trying to teach students about the complexities that are available in these like cooking techniques, why not? expand the curriculum to really show like the breadth of cooking and food. Um, I don't know that I would tell someone they need to go to culinary school um, today. I, you know, I don't regret going like they were, it was a really fun time. Um, I'm still paying the loans off from that time, (laughs) but like, I don't, I don't think it's completely necessary. And especially in this moment where there's so many questions like in the air about like, there's so many questions like in the 
restaurant industry is so up in the air about what's next and what's coming, I, I don't think it is completely necessary. I would say work for someone that you really respect their craft, you really respect like their point of view, um, and they treat people well. Uh, work there and work your way up and go from there. I think that yeah. kind of experience is way more important than a degree. Right. And as you said, you wrote about that for Eater, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you've been writing so much for different outlets like Food and Wine. You've written for Vogue recently, I saw. Congratulations on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, I've but there's. of course um but you know there's been this kind of food media reckoning recently with the revelations of how toxic and racist it has been at bon appetit um do you feel that food media is actually going to change and if so what would you want that reckoning to look like you know i hope it changes um the reckoning is frustrating it's um you know when you like a friend like a friend introduces you to like a friend of a friend and you're like i have a bad vibe like i don't don't really like this person like uh but they're like no 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 so-and-so's wonderful like they did this for me or like you know they're so cool they're into that and then like maybe a few months or a year a couple years later some shit goes down and you're like, see, see, I told you, I told you. That's how I feel about this whole like reckoning thing. Like, right. it's reckoning like for whom? Like, I think these conversations have been happening with. Uh, I I am liking the term POC less and less, but like, right. I think among like writers of color, like these conversations have been happening about what it's like to be at these institutions and how they treat freelancers and how they don't promote the people of color that work within their organization. And so, you know, I, I wonder who we're even centering in the response to the racism, you know? Right. Um, right. I think sometimes like uh, I described, I describe food media drama as like, a dog chasing its tail sometimes <laughs> like it's just yeah. it's so self-involved and I don't know that it honestly does anything but like I hope I truly truly hope there's a lot of introspection and then outreach because there's just way too many dope black folks and mm-hmm. Latinx folks like doing amazing work in this space for them not to be recognized and hired and paid way more than they're getting paid now. Right. Yeah. I. It's funny you said a dog chasing its tail because I get. I think I referenced something Layla has said like every time I do an interview. But she, we were just talking about how it's in um, Ouroboros, like a you know, the the mythical creature. Um, so like where we talk <laughs> as though uh, we need the systems to change, and we know that, but the systems aren't going to change unless the individuals push the systems to change, and the individuals have too much stock in the mm-hmm. systems not being changed too much. Like So many people would have to change their definitions of success in order for there be to be even room at these, you know, magazines and websites that, yeah, that just 
don't do a good enough job um, being inclusive and not just being right. inclusive and not just saying, you know, diversity and representation for their own sake, but, you know, really investing in getting the best work from people and investing in, in giving people the resources they need to do their best work. It's, there's too much, yeah. there's too much bound up in, in people's success too, I think. Yeah have this have the reckoning that we really need yeah. to have. I think it's I think it's going to be very piecemeal whatever changes really do happen. Um but which stinks, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's why yeah, yeah people funny, have their own faces. Know, yeah. Yeah, go on. Like I honestly like I was thinking I just finished reading um I don't know how you feel about Brené Brown, but I just finished reading um The Gifts of Imperfection. And she talks about defining meaningful work for yourself and like creating your own definition of what is meaningful. And then mm -hmm. when opportunities come your way or work comes your way, measuring that opportunity up against that definition and then deciding from there if you're going to take it on or not. Um, right. And so for me, it's been really useful to think about it in that terms instead of like you know going after an award or prestige or this publication or you know like it it's way more it also helps me center like a hungry society too right i'm not right thinking about the other brands as like oh this is actually what i'm chasing it's like well where would the story best fit so the story comes in the center instead of where it lives. Right. No, I think that's so important. And I've never read Brene Brown, but I'm hugely in favor of like self-help, <laughs> like, like new agey type. Um. <laughs> I think that's the writer way, honestly. <laughs> I, I don't think you can be a writer and like be closed off to these kinds of things. I've read Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert twice. Right. So like I'm, I'm all Ooh. aboard, but I would say read that for sure, but <laughs> but you also reminded me of of uh, right. something Toni Morrison wrote um, that I remember the New Yorker published called "The Work You Do, The Person You Are," um, which was uh, basically about the same thing. Yeah, about making sure that your work and the stories you want to tell are at at the forefront of your definition of of success. Which, yeah, like I said, I think that that's that's so important, yeah. and I think that the shifting meaning of success is is something that if people dedicate themselves to doing that work, that'll, that'll really have some sort of changes. Yeah. But, I mean, like, especially as black writers, right. I, Oh my God. Like if, Oh, that is, I just like shivered, like just thinking about it. <laughs> like I had like these, the white gaze as like, or white validation as like my ultimate goal, like how hollow would my work be? You know what I mean? Right. Like, and I would be like constantly chasing this validation that could never come, you know, like, right. it, and, and for what I'd be so sad at the end of my life. Like, right. That's, that's well, <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, last week you were tweeting about <laughs> Juneteenth and it's being branded kind mm-hmm. of a holiday. Um, and I thought those were super interesting, especially as you discussed the fact that Black people in media are understood to be a monolith when in reality there's so much diversity there, of course, regionally, et cetera. So do you see independent and Black-run media as the space where those complex narratives can be told? Or do you think there is other space? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think that there's space for like black breadth across independent publications and the existing ones too. Um, Mm -hmm. I think there's room for like all these different stories to be told. And with Juneteenth, I saw like a couple of explainer type pieces out there that were like, for black people, it means X. And it's like, (laughs) hold on. Like, Juneteenth is very specific to Texas. Um, And like, you know, like I grew up in Maryland, we didn't celebrate Juneteenth. Um, And I know other black folks like that who grew up on the East Coast and didn't celebrate that. Um, But people from points West, even like in Alaska grew up celebrating it. Um, And so I just like, I, I get pretty upset when I see black people and black culture being referred to as like, as if it's ubiquitous when it's not. I mean, the regional differences with like what you would serve with fried fish alone, like it shows that it really depends on where you are at in the country, what you have access to, where your family comes from. Like, I think those are like the types of stories I want to see told are like these very specific regional stories. Cause I think, for too long there like haven't hasn't been enough exploration of that right 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 and yeah it's funny I think because you're not on so I mean I admire this about you but you're not on social media in like a really like intense way the same way many other writers are Um, I'm implicating myself here so I do think that when you when you kind of show up on the Twitter (laughs) timeline I'm like oh oh boy like (laughs) it's like it's time Korsha's like really has something to say but at the same time, it's like, I, it's funny because the way you said like that there are explainer posts about this day and that they're not grasping the real nuance of it. And it's, it's because, or it's seemingly because, and, and it's, this is the way that the content machine works. It's like, people are like, oh boy, we have to like kind of make up for a lot of stuff right now by doing a Juneteenth explainer and then right. not even doing it, doing it justice. And it's like, you know, take a step, everyone needs to take right. a step back and like, on, maybe you only publish something when you know it's, it's, it's solid. It can, you know, and I mean, there was a lot of this with the Bon Appetit thing too, in yeah. terms of like the way people were talking about it. It was like, have you talked to anyone like from this community like (laughs) to understand what actually is going on here like there's just this rush to comment and and to it's and it's just yes but I admire your restraint in commenting and that you only you really only (laughs) get on Twitter when you have something to say um I, I appreciate those words I like it's just so bad for my like mental health that I have to take a break um I honestly, like, in quarantine, I've been doing this thing where, like, I turn off my phone for, like, mm-hmm. a day or so at a time, which is really freeing. Like, it just <laughs> becomes this, like, piece of metal and plastic, like, 
that's useless and like oh i love it um but like yeah maybe maybe that's like my scorpio thing i don't know what that comes from but like i just like yeah i, I figure if i'm gonna say something i should say something useful i don't know no I don't no know. but i mean you're I a writer <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm a Scorpio, so I don't know what that excuse would be, but it's my Gemini rising, I think, that keeps me too chatty. Um, <laughs> uh, but for you, in, no, I'm not really chatty as a, like, as a human being, but I talk too much on the internet for sure. Like I just, I post too much stuff, but like if someone actually wants to talk to me about it, I'm like, eh, like, <laughs> like, no, like just read yeah, it's like read what I wrote. Like some someone emailed me today. Not thought this is totally irrelevant, but someone emailed me today and was like, "You should write about like colonialism and cocktails." And I just like sent a link to like my piece that I wrote last year about yeah. colonialism and cocktails. It's Come just on. like I don't know. It's like, dude, like Google something. I don't know. Like too many people just want like when you're a writer and right. I, you seem available on the internet, people just want you to do things for them. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> yes, they yeah. make you work for them. It's yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's super weird. Um, but for you, is is cooking a political act? Oh, definitely. Um, I would say you know even before it gets the cooking, it's like you know shopping is a political act. Um, I'm actually, I'm working on this piece about my conflicted feelings about Johnny Cakes. Um, mm. So like I said, my mom's side of the family is from the Virgin Islands um, and not far from you. Uh, they're from St. Thomas and St. Croix. And Johnny Cakes are like this fry bread that's flour and shortening and baking powder and uh, a sweetener of some kind, sugar or honey. And when you look at history, like that recipe like is only possible because of colonization and because of not having access to adequate um, like sustenance and the food supply chain in the Caribbean being completely like disjointed by colonization and um, reading, uh, goodness, what his name just went on my head. Um, oh, Chef Son Sean, Sean Sherman. <laughs> um, an intro in that book where he says, you know, you won't find any sort of recipe for fry bread in here because it represents a dark period in my tribe's history like it represents us being cut off from natural resources being cut off from natural food supplies um and i you i won't make you in an indian taco like absolutely not um and so it made me think about my relationship to johnny cakes which my family makes every time we get together when we're in saint thomas like it's something we have with like fried fish and rice and escovetch sauce with butter and scotch bonnets and I love it so much but it does also represent like this disjointing of a people from 
the very land that they're on. And so what does that mean? And am I willing to like never have one again or do a bit more research into what actually makes sense, you know, from a culinary mm-hmm. standpoint? No, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Like, it's it's nice to be on this side of a discussion yeah. <laughs> with Alicia Kennedy. <laughs> I usually have to come up with, like, interesting questions for you. And, um, yeah, it's nice to be on this side. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Well, thank you again. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Thanks.